a God who is most glorious, a God who, in chapter 1 of Hebrews, is raised to heights in the person of Jesus Christ in all His glory, in all His splendor, as very God of very God, the exact representation of the Father, bright with the glory and image of God who is upholding all things by the word of His power, who has purged our sins by Himself, He is set down at the right hand of the majesty of high, our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His full deity. And then in chapter 2, against the argument that perhaps from the people who lived among Him that He was, then why was He a human? Does that not diminish His glory? The writer of the book of Hebrews says, no, it enhances it. It adds a lens and a side to His glory and His humanity that is so much more beautiful that we can see. And so in Hebrews 2, verses 5-9, through He shows how the second Adam undid what the first Adam did and the first Adam's disobedience. How the second Adam is the full display of the image of the glory of God. The first Adam plunged us into sin. It put a cloud on the image of God and man. It distorted, it twisted it. And that's why Jesus had to become a man. And the verses we looked at a couple weeks ago, Tell us an additional truth here about why Jesus became a man. Because he needed to suffer. Because it was necessary for him to become a man to bring men to the Father. And verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death... Because he was a man, he could die. That through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So that is why, in verse 16, he took on the nature of humanity and not an exalted angel that could not die. And it brings us to verse 17 and 18, our focus for this morning. Before we get into those verses, I want to ask you a strange question. How many times were you tempted yesterday? How many times were you tempted this past week? How many times were you tempted in 2015? That's an odd question, and perhaps that's not something that you think about very often. But it's something we do need to think about. Because it's what the writer of Hebrews brings to the forefront, right in front of our faces, like a Mack truck. Our weakness, and one who is strong and mighty. Our brokenness, and one who has suffered, one who is tempted, one who is just like one of us. But in chapter 4.15, yet without sin. The writer of Hebrews brings Jesus' humanity face to face with us and is arguing that He is just like us. 
except the sin part. There was a day on that cross when he became sin for us, but he never participated in sin. That sin was laid on him at the cross. Jesus perfectly obedient, perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ, the one who didn't show up on this earth at the age of 30 and have a ministry of of, of three years and then die on the cross. Jesus Christ, born as a baby through the process and stages of development. Who Luke 2, verse, uh, the end of, uh, of Luke 2 says that he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature, his physical growth, body. He grew in favor with God and man. Now how can the Son of God grow in favor? Well, later on in Hebrews 5 he tells us how. But we'll get to that uh, after when we pick up back up in our series in the book of Hebrews. But I want us to remind us of some key truths. You see, uh, many Christians don't actually understand Jesus was a human. We give lip service to that. We think we do. But in our understanding of the incarnation is the thought that though Christ had a human body, He didn't have a completely human mind. And some might imagine, for example, he had a divine awareness even as an infant. So, uh, uh, you know, his smiling and cooing in his mother's arms were just uh, an accommodation there. All along he knows he's, he's God and he's actually been thinking, you know, you imagine I'm a helpless baby, but I'm the king of the universe. Not true. And a lot of the ways we think about Jesus' humanity is, is, is probably closer in line, in many ways, with an ancient heresy called docetism, that Christ only seemed to be a man. What I want to tell, show you this morning from this passage, that Jesus connects us to God as the bridge, as the perfect mediator, not because he was fully God, but because he was fully man. I shared last week... Uh, or a couple weeks ago here, about the the fact of the Incarnation, an illustration of that, a a glorious and great kingdom, uh, ruled by a strong and wealthy king. He has every privilege one can imagine. He possesses the finest of anything that money can buy. He eats each day from the choicest cuisine from the best chefs. He wears the most elegant and exquisite clothes. He's cared for by the most educated and highly skilled doctors in his land. He's protected by a by the most powerful force of, of royal soldiers, and he takes a journey on a short uh, short journey to a portion of the city where he rules, and he passes an area that he's seldom seen. And before him on the streets, he observes poverty and several beggars, and he can't get these poor men out of his mind. And he begins to wonder, what is it like to live life as a beggar? He can't get that question out of his mind. And so he determines, in order to find out what that's like, he decides to move out of all the privileges that he enjoys, and rightfully so, and onto the streets of the city. And he exchanges his fine clothing and his wardrobe to the tattered, smelly clothes of a beggar. And in every way he can, he acquires the day-to-day life and limitations of a beggar. So now, living as a beggar, when he's hungry... He could have called the royal chefs to prepare him a choice meal. 
He could have, uh, 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 when he was ill from the disease around him, called for his highly trained doctors to attend to him. But instead he learns what it's like to go hungry or beg for food. He learns what it's like to, uh, to be sick with little or if any help. When he's insulted or, or mistreated by passerbyers, he could have called for his royal guard to defend him and bring justice. But he accepts the limitations of and the lowly place of a beggar. Now all the qualities of his kingship are retained fully by this king. He doesn't cease to be king. But his choice to live life as a beggar, those expression of those rights, have been given up. He possesses all the qualities that are his as a king. And he takes on the life of a beggar. But those kingly qualities cannot be expressed at the same time as... He lives fully with integrity to life as a beggar. And that's a... There's some things that are true about that, that are true about our Lord Jesus. Not all about about that illustration. It's true about our Lord Jesus. But the truth is that Jesus, as King, gave up His full exercise. He didn't give up His quality and attributes of God. But he limited himself to live fully as a man. Our verse in Hebrews 2 verse 17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him. In other words, it was necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren. That, that phrase of being made like unto his brethren uh, is, is, is more richly and fully understood when you understand that the, the force of the original language is to be like his brethren in every way. Of course, we know accepting sin except for sin. That he might be merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation. The word in the original language is to make propitiation to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted or tested is the, is the idea. It's a broad range. Could intru- include being tempted to sin. Could also include trials. Tested. He's able to secure or help them that are tempted or tested. Here's the issue that we need to look at this morning. That God Himself becomes one of us. That His likeness to His brothers extends to the experience of the same testing and suffering that are theirs. Jesus was like us in his body. Fingernails that grew. Wrinkles that accumulated. Hair. Elbows. Shoulders. Skin. Eyeballs. Eyelashes. Tears. Nose. May have experienced a runny nose at some time in his life. Mouth. Teeth, tongue that tasted. He knew what it was like to be dirty and have to wash. He knew what it was like at the end of a workday to feel the fatigue and muscle strain. He had the same bodily functions you and I have. His hair grew and had to be cut. 
He knew what it was like to be unable to be in two places at one time. He knew what it was like to be injured. So tired he could hardly keep his eyes open at the end of a hard day. He knew what it was like to bleed, to be bruised. He was just like us in his body. He was like us in his mind. Began as an infant. You understand that? An infant brain that grew and developed. Had connections that multiplied. He was born ignorant as a baby. He had to learn and acquire knowledge. He had to learn what the plants were and what the different foods were, what the different animals were, the different people he was related to. He observed. He had to memorize things. He had to learn how to use deductions and logic in his mind. He had to learn how to discern and distinguish and classify. He had to develop his skills in the workshop. Whether Joseph as a carpenter and Jesus continuing in that trade meant a wood carpenter or probably more likely a stone mason in that area of the world. He experienced imagination, dreams. He was like us in his emotions. Jesus laughed. I'm sure of it. Jesus cried. We know that. Jesus' spirit expressed anger. Jesus rejoiced. There was hatred, a righteous hatred in the Lord Jesus. Desires. Longing. Jesus was like one of us with his soul. He enjoyed relationships, connections, uh, most certainly with his heavenly father, but with relationships and people. He loved his mother. He tells his disciples on the cross to take care of his mother. His heavenly father. His earthly father. Jesus was like us in his social development and learned to relate to people as he grew. He grew in favor with God and man. His social interactions. Jesus on the Sabbath would go to the synagogue. He would listen to the, to the, to the scriptures being read, understand more of it from the rabbis, uh, <coughs> from his father Joseph, I'm sure. Um, he, he, uh, he heard it taught. He understood more and more of who he was and his purpose. As the Spirit revealed that to him. He developed in his understanding. He grew in knowledge, the Bible says. Uh, He learned obedience, scriptures say. He learned from his mother. Perhaps, and I'm sure, she passed on the things that the angel had told her. The Annunciation. She bare the Christ child, the Messiah, through a virgin birth. He understood he was the promised one. He was rooted in the scriptures. Friendships. Jesus had friends. We know he had friends in his ministry, and he was particularly closer to three. But in his lifetime growing up, he enjoyed human friendships. He also knew the other side, the pain of rejection. As a child, I'm sure he knew what it was to have 
children who might not want to be friends with him. And certainly as an adult, he experienced that in mass, didn't he? Finances. He knew what it was like to work for money. And to go without. To work hard for his keep. Food. He ate and he drank because he needed to eat and drink. This wasn't, Jesus' humanity wasn't a token thing. He needed to eat and drink. I'm sure he had certain tastes that he preferred. Certain things he enjoyed more than others. Certain things that weren't his favorite. Certain things that uh, maybe were his, his favorite meals. He knew what it was like to be parched. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to have water on a parched throat. A full stomach after being ravenously hungry from a day of work, hard work. And he knew what it was like to work. He worked 30 years in obscurity and carpentry. He knew the satisfaction and fulfillment of, of a finished project. I'm sure he knew the frustrations of having something chip away that shouldn't have chipped as he worked on those stones or that wood. Uh, he, he, uh, he knew what it was like probably to work with other people, the frustrations of that. He certainly knew the frustration of knowing the curse that had been put upon man's work back in Genesis 3. It was like to have a sore back at the end of the day. Physical injuries and work and play. Certainly on the cross, pierced skin, thorns pressed upon him, whipped. You know, it was like to suffer. He suffered socially as people he thought loved him. Even his own family turned against him. False accusations that we see in his ministry. Uh, rejected. Accused of drunkenness. Accused of blasphemy. Accused of being a rebel against the government. Described as a devil worshiper. He suffered in agony. He suffered as being tempted as the most holy one in that spiritual battle to distrust God and trust himself, to worship the devil. Agonizing. It was all real struggle. No one ever tempted so hard as the Lord Jesus. No one ever tempted so long in intensity as one who had never sinned. It's just like us, yet without sin. It was in all, he was tempted in all things. It was necessary for the purpose of being made like his brother. He experienced these sufferings. And folks, he had to obey and he had to use the same means of grace and testing that you and I do. Our reliance on the power of the Spirit through Him to choose to obey His Heavenly Father. And He did. In Jesus' ministry, the New Testament puts a great amount of stress on His humanity in His ministry. Luke particularly. Luke, as I mentioned in Luke 2.40, says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature 
favor with God and man. Luke 2.40 says he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. 2.52 increased in those things. You know why Luke tells us that? wants us to understand Jesus was true human. True human. He learned things that he didn't previously know. He depends on the Spirit to grant wisdom from on high, from the Word. His dependence on the Spirit would have been as great as devotion to His Scriptures. He would pour over the texts. The Spirit gave Him an increased depth of understanding and discernment in their meanings. And He knew the Scriptures because as you read His teaching, they're always on His lips. It was in His heart. Perhaps that's why he starts his public ministry at age 30 rather than age 12. For three decades, the Holy Spirit works within Jesus. He instructs him. He brings him yet greater and greater insight till the day comes when he is ready to face what God puts before him. He lived his life as a man. There are places in scriptures where the shroud is pulled back and we see his glory. We see him exercise some of his divine prerogatives as God. But fundamentally, as a man, he relies on the spirit to provide the power, the grace, the knowledge, the wisdom, the direction, the enablement he needs. Moment by moment, day by day, to fulfill the mission his father sent him to accomplish. And sometimes we look at Jesus and His temptations and His sufferings and say, yeah, but He's God. I want to tell you that Jesus was faced with the most difficult, the most relentless barrage of temptations that anyone has ever received. Having never sinned, it increases in intensity. After all, Satan knows what is at stake in Jesus' coming. Satan offers to Christ the kingdoms of the world, indicates his knowledge of just why Christ had come. He knows that Christ's work would destroy everything he had built. And so the establishing of Christ's kingdom would bring an end to his dominion. And he brings upon Christ the most difficult temptations he can possibly conceive. Because Satan knows how many sins it would take to make Jesus a sinner. Jesus had the ultimate temptation there. The ultimate trial at the cross. Dying while forsaken. The cross was like the Grand Canyon of suffering. If he could understand that, and he can experience that, and he can make propitiation for the sins of the people, he can understand anything you and I go through. So when I go through suffering, and I go through tests, Hebrews 2.18, he was just like me. And he helps. He helps. Look at the text. Wherefore in all things it behoved and made like unto his brethren. Why? That he might be, made, might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. That he would be a faithful and a merciful middleman. The essence of Christ's work is to represent humans in their movement toward God. His experience of humanity helped him become well qualified. 
Gave him a tender compassion that didn't sit and lay dormant, but that acted. That gave him a consistent obedience. And one that could be relied on and absolutely trusted in. And an active and an accurate representation of his people to his father. A merciful and faithful high priest. And folks, he wasn't once like one of us. He has chosen to still be human forever. He still has the prince in his hands. He is not a spirit. He is a resurrected human being. The God-man. After uh, his, his death, he didn't cast off humanity, but he became a man with a resurrected body and soul. And his past experiences are on the throne with him today. He has a human heart that beats on the throne of the universe as God. Resurrected body. Why does this connect with me and you? I'm sure there are hearts breaking. I'm sure there are people who have suffered in relationships very close to you and seen them disintegrate. There are bodies in pain. There is the weight of the broken world and the curse around us. There is anguish in our hearts and souls. There are burdens for people. There are worries. There are anxieties. But folks, Jesus knows. That's clear. And Jesus understands as a human being. Perfectly. You might say, well, Jesus didn't have any children, and this happened to my children, and so how does he come? Folks, the cross was the Grand Canyon of all suffering. He's gone beyond that, even. But it's not like he knows and understands and just is going to pat our backs. They're there. No. The Bible says in verse 18, he helps because of this. He helps. Look in verse, end of verse 17. He might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation. The word is propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, he took care of our biggest problem. Our biggest problem isn't sore bodies and the anxieties and and the anguish of, of suffering in this world. Those are big issues and we don't minimize those. But the thing that keeps us out of heaven is our sin. And that is the biggest issue. And Jesus Christ, that word propitiation is like the picture of an umbrella. That shields you from the torrential rains coming down. And Jesus Christ became that umbrella between the fire of God's wrath and us. He rushed to take the eternal suffering upon himself. Every drop, every torrent of God's wrath, his wrath against sin, was soaked up in him perfectly at the cross. Do you know what temptation there was there to escape that day? No, we don't. But he bore it all. 
and he bore it as the God-man. He was tempted, he suffered, he endured with a human mind, body, and emotions. He never turned away from the cross as the God-man empowered by the Spirit. And he endured greater temptation and suffering than any other man because he never gave in to sin. One writer says, He knows the full force of temptation in a manner that we who have not withstood it to the end cannot know. You can think of it this way. What bridge has undergone the greatest stress? The one that collapses in the first day? That it's been built or the one that stands over the years? He's a perfect priest because of his propitiation. That he might make propitiation for the sins of the people. We have an utterly holy God with a holy nature that demands wrath against all sin. God cannot set aside His wrath toward our sin and remain holy and remain just. And that is where the propitiating love of God comes. Propitiation again means the satisfaction of God's wrath. To obtain our salvation for us, God Himself met the demands of His holiness in Christ. He propitiated Himself in our place. That's the love of this priest, this high priest. To remove us from under God's wrath and shelter us under His wings as He bore that wrath. And troubled hearts, troubled hearts can rejoice that though that they in Christ will never see God's wrath. They'll see suffering, they'll see testing. They'll never see God's wrath. Christ, our priest, loved us so much, he propitiated his own terrible wrath for them. He satisfied his own wrath by himself taking it upon him. What kind of a priest is that? We in our world um, have discovered the value of support groups. Uh, There are support groups for divorce. Divorces, there are support groups for cancer. There are grief support groups. Uh, Why? Because uh, it it is comforting to be with people who have gone through many of the same experiences, isn't it? Listen, verse 18 says, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to help or secure them that are tempted. you understand what this verse means? That when you suffer, and you are tempted, and you are tested, those vibrations ripple up to his heart in some way too. And he will help. He will assist in testings. We want to quit. We want to falter. We want to collapse. But in fact, He's the only way because He tells His people, without Me, you can do nothing. He never leaves. He never forsakes us. He put His Spirit 
the Holy Spirit, the Comforter inside of us, never to leave. He gives us His precious promises. He gives us enough grace for each day to take the next step. Many times, in many ways, in a quiet fashion. One of the things in my house that comes up frequently in correction and other things and frustrations is uh, this phrase, you don't understand. You don't understand. Meaning, you don't identify. You can't help me. But we can never say that of Jesus. Whatever the test. He knows the test. And He knows you better than you even know yourself. And with temptations to sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, He's given a way of escape in any temptation. With the pressures of suffering and testing, His grace, Paul says, is sufficient. His strength is sufficient. Folks, Jesus gets it. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets it, and because of that, Jesus can help. And He will help, no matter what stage you are in as a believer. And in fact, ultimately, though we're called to come alongside and help each other, and that is one of the ways He does help, but He's the only one who ultimately can help. Our job is to point each other and to point the lost world to the one who can help. And so whatever heavy burdens you're crushed under, whatever has torn your heart in shreds, this verse tells us that you can go to Jesus. He understands. And He will help.